Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Graham Parsons and the Fallen Angels. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Our guest today is David Prince. He is the co-founder of the Amoeba Records chain. Well, they got a few stores. I guess it's a chain. And they also have a record label there and where he puts out what seem to be mostly passion projects. Uh, and Graham Parsons, as we will learn in this interview, is a huge passion for Dave. And uh, so we're going to hear a little bit about how this new Graham Parsons release that we're hearing in the background right now, how it came to be, what's in the future for possible uh, Graham Parsons releases, and a little bit about how they run Amoeba Records in this day and age. So lots, lots to talk about here. Super interesting, super nice guy. And uh, hope you enjoy it. Happy holidays to everybody. Happy New Year. Talk soon. Thank you very much. There is Graham Parsons from this new release called Graham Parsons and the Fallen Angels, uh, the last roundup live from the Bijou Cafe in Philadelphia, recorded uh, just about exactly 50 years ago in Philadelphia, March 16th, 1973. David Prince, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm very good, Michael. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Oh, it's our, it's our pleasure. All right. I was thinking about my wife. Now, she's who I usually imagine is listening to this. And I'm going to guess that if you said to her, who's Graham Parsons, she wouldn't exactly know. She would say some music guy, you know. So for the people who don't know, I'm going to give a one paragraph you know, egregiously short uh, biography. Born in Florida, went to Harvard, formed the International Submarine Band, joined the Birds in 68, influenced Sweetheart of the Rodeo, a legendary sort of country rock crossover album, left the Birds shortly after, formed the Flying Burrito Brothers, fired from that band, legendarily palled around with Keith Richards, made some solo records, died 1973, age 26, from a drug overdose, we can say. Uh, so help us understand why Graham Parsons' place in music history is important. What did he contribute? What's his link in the chain? When he joined the Birds, they were much more of a folk direction kind of a band, and he turned them towards more like uh, country and country rock because that was his passion, you know. And when they put Sweetheart of the Rodeo out, it was it was a kind of a revolutionary album because nobody had really done that before, melded country with, with sort of the hippie ethos of rock. And while not popular at the time, a lot of Birds fans didn't understand what was going on and weren't too happy with it. There were people who really loved it, and sort of the subcult formed around him and that record. Now today, that record outsell every year outsells all the other birds records combined if you can believe that mm. including greatest hits yes that's amazing yes yes out of, out of all the other birds records combined so while in 1968 it hadn't found its place yet 50 years later or, or 55 years later it, it is now the most popular birds record every year because of graham and his participation in that record and then he went on to form the Flying Burrito Brothers, which was a band that really didn't care about commerciality, and but were really a great band. Their first album, Gilded Talus of Sin, is regarded as one of the, the great country rock records of all time, and the seminary country rock record that all others sprang from. Then he, he, he did get fired from the Flying Burrito Brothers because he wasn't really uh, 
and he got bored. He, he used to get bored pretty easy, you know, and I don't know if he got bored or he just wanted to go out on his own and whatever, but he, he probably deserved to be fired from that band. He was not really um, very responsible for, you know, his participation in it. And um, he did get fired and went on to have us put out two solo albums, only one of which was released during his lifetime. So literally, there was only five records in his lifetime, yeah. And then the last album came out, uh, Grievous Angel came out after he'd passed. But by then, he was pretty well known in certain circles and, well, an outlier in terms of commerciality. Uh, he was well thought of by people who really cared deeply about about music and what he was doing. So he has... He had a bit of a cult following uh, while he was still alive, and it's only grown since since he's passed. And there is still a lot of every generation, you know, young people find out about him and hear him and take to him because he was special, a really special singer, I feel, who could phrase like just sort of brilliantly without thinking about it and had an amazing voice that's very evocative and, and really moved people, including me. That's why I'm out there looking for new Graham to put out, and that's why I did this project. This is difficult, but, you know, he died so young, and there is, in rock, rewriting rock history or constantly writing rock history, people who die young often get mythologized, and it's hard to always tell what's what's deserved and what's real and... Um, you know, people, for some reason, love to romanticize drugs and death, and it's sort of unhealthy in a way. Uh, you know, his talent is one thing, his character or his lifestyle, another thing. Are there misconceptions about how he lived his life? Well, you know, I, I would say he, he lived, he was like a supernova, you know, he lived fast and, and lived hard, and he died young. He wasn't thinking about it. He just, I mean, he definitely wasn't planning on, on leaving that early. It was definitely a terrible accident, as Keith Richards calls it, and I think that's absolutely true, right? It was just a terrible accident, and he was—he had problems with with substance abuse. It's—it's it's true because obviously that killed him, and it's truly sad. And you know, one of the saddest days of my life was the day that I heard that Graham had passed, and I'll never forget it. I was at Dayton Records in um, Manhattan, and the radio's on, and I'm, I'm shopping, and they're talking about how Graham Parsons just died. And just to this day, I'll never forget, like, no, not Graham. As any artist in the world, not him, please. And it was, it was him. And it was so sad. And you're right about the romanticism of, uh, romanticizing of, of artists who've died young. I mean, that's one of the reasons young people still take to him is because he never got old. He's, he's still only 26 at, at best. And that's the same with an artist like James Dean. James Dean never uh, got got fat and bald like Marlon Brando. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting interesting theory. You were in a record store when you heard the news. Were you were you working? Were you shopping? Shopping, yeah, I was shopping. It's Dayton Records, and I'll never forget it. One of my, you know, one of my, you know, I'm such a fan, and and I hear what you're saying, and you're right. You know, is it true that he was that good? Or he's just being romanticized uh, because uh, of of the notoriety of, of how he died and and that whole story. So you know, when I heard this tape again, I realized this is some of the best ground that I've ever heard. And if I can clean this up and make it sound as good as as good as we can, 
I think this this will prove truly how 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 good he was. I, I think this tape really does uh, this this show really does prove how amazing a singer he was and how great him and Annie Lou Harris were together. I think it proves it. Yeah, uh, and that's why I wanted to get it out there. You know, for a lot of Graham fans, this this release means a lot. This is the first new solo Graham in 40 years, since 1982, because all the live stuff of him out there that's bootlegged has the voices way behind the instrumentation, and you really can't hear the nuance and the subtlety in, in his voice and Emmys when they sing together. But this particular album is sourced from the vocal mics, and you can really hear them sing. So this is what was going through the, the soundboard, and it was originally recorded to a cassette tape, is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, did you get a chance to see him live because you were such a huge fan? As a matter of fact, I did. I saw him twice at Max's Kansas City in Manhattan. I don't know if you ever had a chance to go to that club. It was pretty cool. It wasn't very big, maybe fit 150 people. And uh, he was doing four shows a night or three shows a night there. And then they did the Swelling Burrito Brothers reunion show where Clarence White was there and a lot of the burritos were there. Emily Harris was there and that was really great. That was a really amazing show. He did two of those, and they were planning on doing a whole tour later on from that. And of course, it never happened because he passed soon after. Mm. So let's talk about the process of getting this from a cassette. The, as far as I can tell, the story is that the pedal steel player of Graham's band, The Fallen Angels, said to the sound guy that night in 1973, hey, you know, can, did you record it? Can you give me the cassette of it, which he carried around for a while. Uh, eventually, you found him. You're a notorious, huge Graham uh, Parsons fan. Uh, you transferred it to CD. Then it sat around a while. Then you realized, then you recently sort of stumbled upon it and uh, uh, started working on it to get it to sound good. So uh, tell me, you know, when we think of a 50-year-old cassette tape, we, we don't think of something that sounds great. And sometimes board tapes are you know, because the folks can in the audience can hear the amplifiers as well. So the board tapes aren't necessarily balanced for a home listen. So tell me what shape the audio was in when you got it and what you did to get it to the state it is on on this release. Neil Flans was the steel player in the band. This is probably one of the last shows of the tour. And um, after the show, he felt like this was the best show of the tour. That's, that's what he... That's what he told us when we were acquiring the tape from him. He felt this was the best show that, that they had played that tour, and that's why he asked for a copy of the soundboard. And luckily, they had one. Uh, they gave it to him on cassette, and he held it for about 35 years. And in about 2007, we were putting out another Grand Parsons release, which was a, the Flying Burrito Brothers Live at the Avalon from April of 1969, and we got that tape from Bear, who was the Grateful Dead's tape archivist. We used to tape all the Dead shows. But if, the, if there was an opening act at a Dead show that Bear liked, he would tape that as well. So he was a big Burrito Brothers fan and a big Graham fan. So um, back in the day, we got this tape from Bear of, of two different shows at the Avalon. We put that out. While we were working on that, Neil Franz heard we were putting some Graham material out and contacted my partner, Joe Goldmark, and he told Joe about this tape. So uh, we said, yeah, let's hear it, you know? And I heard it, and I thought it was really good. So we worked out a deal with Emil to acquire it. I kind of forgot about it because I moved on to some other things. It was a lot of, a lot of work putting out that Avalon show because I was dealing with Bear 
who whose nickname is Bear because he's difficult, just so you know, what <laughs> he was. Uh, and Chris Hellman, who didn't really want this out, uh, because um, he, you know, he, he has some deep issues with Graham, and we won't get into that. But let's just say, after that project, I wasn't too keen on doing another Graham project for a minute. Let me just you slow, you, slow you down for one second. I, we, you don't have to go too deep into it, but what is Chris's nature of his problems with not wanting good-sounding music out? He just has a problem. If, I don't know if he still does, but he, I think he had some abandonment issues to Graham since Graham left him twice. He left him after Chris brought him into the birds and he didn't go on the South African tour with them. And then he, um, you know, he left the burrito brothers in a sense. Yeah. He got fired, but he had certainly left the band before he got fired. You know, he wasn't showing up to gigs. He wasn't showing up to practices. And Chris is a consummate professional. And Chris, I have total respect for. He's a really good guy and really cool. So as a result, I think he has trouble recognizing Graham's, let's just say, excellence at times and, and has some residual issues with them. And when he heard the Avalon tapes, he said it was the worst <laughs> crap he ever. <laughs> and I had lunch with him at the Moonshadows restaurant in Malibu to try to convince him that it wasn't. <laughs> And we maybe could put it out. So I didn't want to put it out without his blessing, you know. And I finally got him to come around and, and be okay with it. But it was not easy, and I could see it was painful for him. So um, he, I can't explain exactly what's up with his issues with Graham, but I, that's my theory about it is, is, is that, yeah. So anyway, I kind of forgot about what we had had, I had a bunch of stuff uh, that I had acquired to put out some future releases of, of Graham, uh, and I put them all in a box and I forgot about it. And then when we moved the LA store to our new location, uh, the box was found in, in our offices. And that was a big, a big space. It was 50,000 square feet, that store, that building. So it was pretty, it wasn't hard to lose stuff. Let's just say that. And so it got lost. And then, Somebody said, Dave, we found this box at Graham Parsons' archives, and we maybe should want to take a look at it. So I, I, next time I was down there, I looked at it, and I found this uh, the CD of this tape. Because I never did get the tape from Neil. He wanted to keep that, but he transferred it to a CD. So I listened to it. I said, this is really good. And I felt we could, we could make this sound great if we, if we did certain things to, to enhance it and, and correct it. The biggest problem was distortion. And distortion is very hard to get out. And there was quite a bit of distortion. There was, as you say, it wasn't balanced very well. There was some, some dropout here or there, things like that. But I worked with this amazing sound archivist named Gary Hobish. Man, this guy was amazing, okay? He, he's like a magician. And, and he made it sound so good and so alive. And, you know, for a 50-year-old cassette, I'm really proud of what he did. You know, and we worked on it really hard. We worked on it for well over a year till finally it was as good as it could be. I'm really happy with how it came out. And I think a lot of grandfans are, are feeling it too. You know, if you're a grand fan, I think it's well worth having and hearing. Uh, I love it. You mentioned this this box. Now, I guess you are sort of the clearinghouse, or you have been for years for Grand Parsons stuff, especially since I guess you started to 
to re-release some of it. But then again, you totally forgot about this box. So tell me what was in this, what else is in this box and where did it all come from? Well, it came from various sources as, as I was gathering Graham. I had this, these grandiose visions of releasing all sorts of things from the Graham Parsons archives. But I'll tell you a few things that are in the box that I think people might be interested in. We have a complete bird show from the Kaleidoscope, a soundboard of that from the Kaleidoscope in Los Angeles, the last American uh, show Graham ever did with the birds. And it's really good. And there's some very interesting songs on there that you've never heard Graham do. So that's cool. I have a soundboard of Altamont, of the Brutos at Altamont, that's, I'd really like people to hear. That's really good, too. And I'd say those are the two uh, main things in the box that, that need to come out uh, that are still outstanding. So, and, and is it just getting people in lots of people to say yes? Is that the, the hassle at this point? Yes. You know, for, for a solo release like ours, I didn't need much. I only needed Emmy Lou Harris's uh, blessing on that. And she was really kind and, and gracious and, and really sweet about it and was uh, and, and, and supported the project and was really great. But uh, if it's a Burrito Brothers, uh, I got to deal with Chris Hillman again. <laughs> and the Another birds, lunch. Course, yeah, and the birds was even more. I got to deal with Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn. So I'm just kind of taking it easy for a minute, you know? But I do have a lead on the famous Graham Parsons Lost album that is the holy grail for Graham collectors. The story is he made this album in the summer of 71. He checked out the tape, never brought it back, and nobody's ever heard it. But um, there's all sorts of great songs on there nobody's ever heard him do. Clarence White's on it, Roy Cooter's on it, Spooner Oldham's on it. Jesse and you know where it is? I have a guy who says he has it. I'm trying to get it from him. That's all I can say. <laughs> But maybe, and if I get that, that's coming out. One of the things that I was that I read about when I was just kind of looking for information about the project was that you guys raised money on Kickstarter, $134,000 just about, which kind of astonished me. Like, uh, And I think it points to the incredible Graham Parsons fan base that's out there. Kickstarter's not exactly brand new, but it, it is sort of a unusual, you know, not the typical way of doing things. Did that reaction surprise you, or were you expecting that? I didn't know what to expect, Michael. I seriously didn't, but I think, let's give it a try, you know? Let's offer them some stuff. You know, on Kickstarter, we put out three 10-inchers in addition to this of very, let's say, just deep archival stuff that would be, you know, mostly of interest to fans, like uh, a radio show interview where they did three songs, which was pretty good. I had some some lost home recordings of his from 69 where he does this song this legendary song two hearts which supposedly the flying breeder brothers had recorded but nobody had ever heard i wanted people to have a chance to to get some of this stuff although it wasn't that commercially viable i thought this is a good way to get it out there to the real fans and then have them help support this you know it was like this great circle we were forming that if if they if they would uh participate in the kickstarter then I would have the funds to uh, remaster this to the best of my ability and not have to worry about the expense of it and have the money for the printing and, and everything and, and be able to do a really nice package. And and people were really interested. And um, I spent a lot of money on the remastering, but I didn't care because it was sort of, it was like this group effort of everybody who wanted this out in the world pooling together to make it happen. And that's really nice 
I, I thank all of them for helping us do that. And I'll tell one story uh, in, in regard to that of, of how much they helped. Uh, on Sin City, grabs one of his signature songs. That was the last problem we had out of all the problems. And there were many with, with this recording that we had solved. There was one that we couldn't. And that was, we could not get the underlying static out of Sin City, even though it sounded pretty good. I knew that if we get it out, we could really bring their voices even further forward and just make the song sound even so much better. So I, I said to Gary, I said, can we get the static out? And he goes, no, I can't get it out, Dave. I said, oh, come on, Gary. We, we should be able to get to that. It's not that hard. He goes, I can't get it out. And, and if I can't get it, he said, I, I just can't. I, I've tried. There's nothing I can do. I said, well, I know someone who can get it out. There's nobody who can get it out. If I can't get it out, no one can. I said, I know someone who can. He goes, who? I go, his name is Shy Fishman. I worked with him on, I was also did this project where I was restoring Louis Armstrong's catalog. Let me just say that Shy and I took out a, a lot of underlying static on Louis recordings uh, for this archive that we're putting together. And I said, Shy can do it. He goes, well, who is he? Uh, I said, Shy is the head of noise reduction at Wave. And uh, Gary goes, oh. Well, let's bring them in. So we bring them in, and five thousand dollars later, there's no more underlying static on Sin City, and that's what the Kickstarter did for us. It gave me the ability to to not care about spending five thousand dollars on one thing, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll spend anything uh, within reason to make Cram sound good. It's it's my passion. And I very much feel a responsibility to do the best I can when I'm working on something like this. That's wild. Uh, that is a wild amount of money. Uh, you are the co-founder of Amoeba Records, as I've said before. Why has Amoeba done well in cities where other stores have closed? What's the difference? You know, that's a good question. You know, when we first started, our thoughts and our philosophy was to try to have a store that was inclusive for everyone and, and to have a way that people could shop in our stores, even if they didn't have that much money, they could still have a good time and still come out with, there with, with stuff that would mean something to them. So we decided like the best way to do that would be to have a store that was half new and half used and have the ability for people to bring in records that they didn't want anymore or anything they didn't want, posters or CDs or videos or whatever. And, and trade those in for either cash or trade, and then be able to uh, turn that into other, other other records that they might want to listen to uh, in lieu of the things they were getting rid of. So it became like this giant trading post, and it was it was kind of a new concept. Nobody had really done that anywhere. Like, you know, a store the size of Tower, but with half new and half used. As soon as we did it, you know, I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but the first day we ever opened, I'll never forget going to the store. Uh, we were opening at 10, and I got there around uh, maybe 9-ish, and there was like a big line around the block already. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe this is going to work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, And people took to it because, you know, they just knew that we were a bunch of old hippies or young hippies at that point who were uh, their people. You know, we weren't a corporate, a corporate record store like and I got nothing against these stores. You know, I got nothing against Sam Goodies because that was my store when I went, used to live in New York. But we weren't that, you know. We were, we were like this other, this sort of hippie offshoot of, 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 of a mainstream record store. The fact that you could go in there 
and you never know what you're going to find, you know, and that's, that's pretty cool. That's what I used to like about a record store too. You know, I used to like to go into a store where, you know, maybe you were looking for something, but maybe there was something there that you weren't looking for that you wanted anyway. You just didn't know it yet. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, a, a used record store, a used bookstore has hidden treasure and a new store, you know, you know, they only are limited to what's in print and that's less and less, you know, every year. Uh, so yeah, uh, there's nothing like a, a, and for a buyer, it must be so fun to just see what treasure kind of comes in the door. How do you not just keep yourself from buying everything or did you buy everything over the years? Yeah. And for a while, you know, uh, you just start bringing everything home and then you realize I should bring some of this back to the store, you know, <laughs> boxes and boxes and boxes of 45s that I wasn't getting to. And, uh, so I, I've, I've given quite a bit back to the store. But yeah, it's hard not to, man. It's the greatest uh, being first in on a, on a buy. We just did a, a 12,000 record buy yesterday that had 2,400, that 2,545 that all had picture sleeves. It's fun, you know. It, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun business to be in when it's going well. For a minute, people would look at you and say, people still buy records? And yeah, some, <laughs> you know, but now it's sort of back, you know, yeah. uh, finals back, cool. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just sit around uh, and, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden you're back in the right place at the right time when you, you, you might not have been five years ago, you know. So uh, right now it's pretty good, the, the record business. A lot of folks didn't make it through, so it may be that hippie attitude of yours was worth, I don't know, something to keep you afloat uh, during those lean years. Because a lot of, you know, it changed a lot. Do you think the future looks good for r record retail? Really good. I, I, you know, right now, see, the thing that happened was young people stopped buying records, okay? They're the crucial element of that business is young people being interested in music. And they're still interested, but they were they were listening to it on, on on their iPads and whatever, and they weren't, or maybe downloading, but they certainly weren't buying physical music. And so our customer base just kept getting older and older, and they were still passionate about it. But you know, as you get older, you, you tend to buy less and less music, and you need you need a farm system where the, the youth's coming up, uh, you know, replacing some of the older people. So all of a sudden, it became cool again for kids to have vinyl. And so it's a whole new thing where, you know, the young, youngs are buying music again. They're buying physical music again. And it's getting better. It's not getting worse. Like, it, 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 it's growing. It's sort of, it's becoming hipper and hipper. And there's a reason for that. It's because it sounds a lot better than listening on earbuds. And it's more present. And, and it's also, you have, a, you have a stake in it when you own it, rather than you just downloading it or streaming it uh it you know you know when you buy a record you give it a chance because you just spent some money on it yeah. so you're gonna right we've all done it we've all bought records we go what the hell did i buy that for <laughs> you know <laughs> but, uh, but in any case it gives people uh i, I think i think the, the future of physical music is very good right now you know and, and and here's another weird thing cds are kind of coming back too which is crazy First vinyl came back and CDs started to, you know, really wane, but we still sell, we're selling more used CDs now than ever as well. And, really? and that's kind of, yeah, seriously, which is crazy, but CDs are kind of coming back. When we first opened Fleetwood Mac Rumors, 
was a dollar record. Even if it was in great shape, it was a dollar record because there, there was tons of them and, and everybody was turning their vinyl in and getting CDs and nobody wanted vinyl like that. Now it's a $50 record. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That is something that is hard to comprehend, that I, and I've I've seen that same thing. There were certain like records that folks my age bought in their college years and, and were so ubiquitous in used bins for a while. Even like replacements records, things like that. They were just, and then all of a sudden, they became right. fifty dollars records or thirty, whatever. It's crazy, yeah. And the new price of vinyl is insane. Is that? I mean, to me, that's one of the things that just seems when you see a new Neil Young reissue for $40, is that crazy or is that not crazy? You know, I think it'd be a little better for the industry uh, if single LPs were priced at 19 and doubles were maybe 24 29 I think that would be better for the industry. And I think $40 single records too much. I agree with that. But it doesn't seem to be killing it, you know. Everything finds its level and hopefully we'll get to that where you know, a little bit more affordable for everyone. And uh, I would like that, you know. I think 19 is the right price. Maybe 24 for a single record and 29 for a double seems about right to me. You know, there's still plenty of room for people to make money at those uh, more prices. So, yeah. but there's no, there's no standard. You know what I mean? There used to be like, everything was a certain price if it was a single and everything was a certain price if it was a double for the most part when we were kids. Not so much anymore. What's the best website to send folks to if they want to pick up Grand Parsons and the Fallen Angels, the last roundup? Go to Amoeba.com. Real easy. Amoeba.com. And we still have some. We made 7500 for domestic release. All the record store days copies for most of the stores in the country, I think, sold out. But we still have some at uh, for mail orders if people want to hear it. They should go to Amoeba.com, and there's a good chance they'll get it if they act pretty soon. All right. Dave Prince, thank you. This is It's so fascinating. I think we could talk about record store minutia uh, for hours, but uh, I, I don't want to drive people insane. But I'm so curious. <laughs> I'm, I've always – it's just it's such a curious um, economy, you know, the idea of selling used records over and over again. It's a – uh, anyways, bless you for doing it. Folks can visit Amoeba.com, visit Amoeba in person. And Dave, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate it. Well, pulled out of Pittsburgh, rolling down the eastern seaboard. Got my diesel wound up and she's running like never before. I got ten forward gears and a Georgia overdrive. Taking little white pills and my eyes stay open wide. I just passed the Jimmy and White. I'm in a mess and everything inside. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight.
like a month since I kissed my baby bye-bye And I could have a lot of women But I'm not like some of the guys I can find one to hold me tight But I can never make believe it's all right Six days on the road And I'm gonna make it home tonight Don't you know that the FBI Taking on down the line Sick of his shit? <laughs> <laughs> 